I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm stood at the top of the Alpine Meadow RHS Garden Wisley and it's a kaleidoscope of colour. I love this time of year because the grass is so deep green and it's studded with beautiful blue and purple autumn crocus and the trees are lighting up individually. They're all turning different shades of orange and purple and red and it's, it's like a light show, it's just magical. And joining me today is Melissa Mabbitt, who's executive editor of The Garden Magazine. Hi, Melissa. Hey, Gareth. It's good to be here. And I completely agree. Wisley is putting on such a lovely show. The hydrangeas are just going into their kind of antique phase where some of the flowers take on kind of vintage tones of taupe and they just look beautiful and they will continue to look beautiful well into winter. And the dahlia trial field I found is an education in which ones will stand up to a chill because there's already been a frost here and some of them have really kind of blackened a bit, but some of them are still looking really good. Yeah, it's really surprising, isn't it? Some of them have become little black heaps of mush and then others are still looking, you know, still giving quite a good flowering display. And for today's show, we thought we might capture some of this wonderful autumnal beauty, but also look ahead as winter edges ever closer. We'll be chatting to Sheila Das about No Dig, exploring how wasps prepare for winter and checking in with our advisors for a seasonal Q&A. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. And me, Melissa Mabbitt. So we've walked up the hill to Wisley's World Food Garden, which is a space influenced by traditional English gardens, but with an international twist. And so, for example, we're standing in one of the greenhouses now, but uh, it's got some amazing chilies in it. But it's also got a bitter gourd, which is a really unusual cucumber relative. And what I love is they've planted basil out along the bottom of that. And you can really smell that hitting the air and filling the space. It's wonderful. But one of the founding principles of this garden is the use of the no-dig method, which is applying compost and other organic matter to the soil surface to control weeds rather than digging them up. And this method, no-dig, is near and dear to garden manager Sheila Das's heart. So, since tomorrow is no-dig day, I stopped by Sheila's office to hear her case for it. To start off, can you tell me about the story of the no-dig method? So what is it and how did it become popularised? 
I think that's a really important thing to say is how did it become popularized more recently, Gareth? Because mm. it's been it's been the way that we've gardened since the beginning of time. We didn't always habitually dig the soil and it's something that certainly in the 20th century became more of a habit. So digging soil we perceive to be a way of improving soil, mm. of breaking up what we thought was compaction and of producing lots and lots of crops very, very quickly. But certainly in recent years, there's been a real movement towards appreciating how soil actually works. Yes. And that for me is where no dig has come into play. Mm. As people have started to understand that there's a whole microbiome and a set of living organisms beneath the ground that are doing really great things that can help us as gardeners, it makes absolute sense not to break that and yeah. kill them and, and disturb the soil. Because that's the big change, isn't it, in terms of the way we look at soil fertility. Like when I went to college, and I'm sure when you went to college, soil fertility was how much nutrient you put on. So can you tell me about your no-dig journey then? How did you find out about it and, and how has it progressed? Yeah, I was a student at Kew when I first came across no-dig. I just started at Kew and there were a series of lectures that we used to do on a Monday evening. One of the lecturers coming, or one of the titles of the lecturers, was No-Dig Gardening by a chap called Charles Dowding. They used to run at six o'clock on a Monday and I was a bit tired after my day in the garden, but I thought, I'll go and have a look. This guy grows veg, I like growing veg, so... But, you know, no-dig gardening is just for lazy gardeners, really, isn't it? It's people who can't be bothered. But let's hear what he's got to say. So I went and listened to Charles for an hour, and I walked out of there and I thought, do you know what? That makes absolute sense. <laughs> what struck me the most was less about the science of it, actually, and more about Charles's pragmatism and just common-sense approach, and also about being efficient. You know, I was just, I'd just embarked upon this three-year course, the Q Diploma, it's fiercely intense, and I had big allotment and I thought, am I really seriously going to have time even to dig? So I had a clay allotment, we should say, and I'd been on it for a few years. Well, I say it was my allotment. It was actually my mum's allotment, which I slightly hijacked when I got into <laughs> horticulture. But that's another story. We'd been, you know, doing the trench, putting the compost in the bottom of the trench, putting the topsoil back in, as, as it said in the RHS books and yeah. all the other books that I was looking at. And then, you know, we literally just moved to, from that point, so this was 2011, the compost and manure that I could get my hands on, I would just put on the surface, and that was it from there. So and when people say, oh, you know, it doesn't work on clay, or it doesn't work on this soil, and actually my experience of it on a clay soil was that it, it worked. It was all about, did I have stuff to eat? And I still had stuff to eat. So in my mind, it was a success. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about different soil types, because I think with with a clay soil, it's quite prone to compaction. And that's obviously one of the risks of digging lots. You're treading on the soil a lot. And from my own experience, you know, I, I have a very sandy soil on my allotment. So I dug and dug and dug and I got fed up of digging. Mm. And about three quarters of the way through, I mulched with cardboard. I was just like, I've had enough. I'm gonna just mulch the rest with cardboard, put a load of organic matter on top and planted through that. And actually the results on that bit were every bit as good as the stuff that I dug and dug yeah. and removed every tiny weed and stone and things. Yeah. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. But I think that's really, that's really important. And that was something I really picked up from Charles. And he's done trials, which he logs on his website, which is quite interesting. And he gets marginally more yields out of his no dig bed. But actually the point for me was it wasn't any worse. So if I was going to change to do this, it required me to do less it was potentially going to have other benefits too. I just kind of thought, well, it's a no-brainer. We're getting crops, we're getting stuff to eat, but so fundamentally, we're also building that environmental infrastructure that we need for the planet to work. 
So by not digging soil, we are allowing all of the organisms in soil to build channels and aerate and store water and drain water. So what we'll see on no-dig soils uh, much more often is that water will very easily sink in. It will stay where it's needed. There is drainage there. There's all of that then, if we call them ecosystem services, is the term we mm. like to use, isn't it? However many thousands of gardens it is, and I forget the number now uh, that we've got in the UK, if every single person is storing and capturing water and air in their soil, which is improving plant growth, but potentially also helping to manage carbon. So when mm. we disturb soil, we can potentially release carbon and really strong fungal networks in soil can be really good storers of carbon and help us to manage that a bit better. And it's, it's just basically a system that evolved itself. And if we yeah. can follow that system, we could be onto a winner in so many more ways than just having good food. This sounds fantastic. You know, you're building this, what you call environmental infrastructure of the soil. I love that. I love that term, the idea of these communities of fungi and invertebrates, and they're all living there and they're working together and they're actually maintaining the structure of the soil in a way that's beneficial for the gardener and the planet. But how do, how do you go about it? I'll describe what happened in my own house a few years ago. So I moved into my house four years ago and um, there was a lawn and a decent sized garden. And I thought, okay, I'd really like to grow some veg in my garden, obviously I would. Um, how am I gonna go about preparing this? Now the lawn had been cut quite regularly and it wasn't very weedy. So I don't know what had been done to it. It was a little bit mossy, which maybe suggested to me that the drainage wasn't terribly good. People often talk about using cardboard with no dig. So what you could do in that situation is put some cardboard down and put some organic matter, some well-rotted organic matter, a sort of a bulky mulch, if you like, mm. over the top and create a no-dig bed in that way. And it literally is as simple as that. So what the cardboard is doing, and sometimes you wet the cardboard because it helps the cardboard to rot a bit quicker or it helps it to stop it blowing around in the wind even when you're While making you're the bed. While you're doing it, yeah, I've yeah. been there, done that. Yeah, so what the cardboard's doing is it's stopping, if there were any weeds in that lawn, it's yeah. stopping them from kind of coming it's a sort up. a physical barrier to, to yeah. the plant growth, yeah. At first level, and then your layer of mulch is also doing the same. Mm. So then what you can do, and your mulch has to be very well rotted, but you can plant directly into yeah. that mulch. And, you know, any plant will grow in organic matter, pretty much. Um, so you get a little plug plant, for example, or you sow some seeds into that mulch and you're growing into there. And gradually the roots will feed out through that compost and then gradually make its way down to that layer where you've got the cardboard poke their way through because the cardboard's probably rotted by that point and then yeah. get down into the soil. So you need quite a thick layer of organic matter then to plant into. Yeah, so this is really interesting actually and people worry about how much mm. organic matter they're going to need and it does all depend on those circumstances. So in my circumstance, I literally used a couple of inches, you know, wow. maybe only five centimetres because my grass was quite short. Yeah. It didn't have lots of big weeds in it already. It had been really close cut and I didn't even use any cardboard. So I literally went into that garden. I put, yeah, a couple of inches of organic matter down on the ground wow. and I started growing into it. Now I'm not saying that's always going to work in every setting. Mm. We've created some beds in the orchard, for example, at Wisley. Now that's much rougher grass. There's lots of weeds in there, lots of things we think of as weeds. So what we've done there is yes, we've put the cardboard down and we've gone much thicker. Yeah. So we've gone, you know, probably double that amount of mulch, but yeah. that's just for the first year. Yeah. So it's just to suppress those weeds, just mm. to try and control that growth. And then you can plant in through oh. that. 
and you know shoveling that amount of mulch sounds like a lot of work but from experience i know it's a lot less work than digging up a lawn which is yeah. kind of backbreaking yeah and that's a really important thing to say no lifting of turf mm. you don't have to go and lift the turf up first that's part of your organic matter yes. that's great it's a great structure there yeah already. you've already yeah. got some roots in there from the grass they're already doing good things in the soil so why would you take that away mm. don't take that away what you might find, so at my allotment, for example, that was covered in docks and thistles when I got there. Yep. I did cut it down and again, didn't have enough cardboard actually to do the whole thing with cardboard. So I just covered it in a layer of manure, not particularly thick. For the first two years, I would say I was, I was taking out docks and mm. thistles. I was using a, a pointy tool, which we're all using now called a horry horry, which is nice uh, and sharp. Yeah. Helps you to get out tap-rooted weeds. Looks a bit like a dagger, doesn't yes, it? It, it looks does. kind of scary when you first yeah. see it. Yeah. <laughs> really versatile tool. You can plant with it, you can weed with it. So I did spend a lot of time getting those deeply tap-rooted weeds out, but now I don't really come across mm. those too much. But that's a job you do once. Yes. Then you'll find in subsequent years, you might only mulch it much more thinly, so an inch yeah. or two, mm -hmm. you know, very, very light layer of organic matter. Isn't it great the way that nature has got all these solutions and it's always about that. Come back to that for me because she's got the answers and it is really, <laughs> really quite, quite empowering and liberating actually for gardeners, I think. Sheila, that's an absolutely inspirational message to end on. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Gareth. It's been a pleasure. No dig is absolutely great for your gardens, worms and other invertebrates because if they're left undisturbed they will in turn benefit all kinds of other garden wildlife like birds and small mammals. It's about bolstering your garden's ecosystem. Of course there are many ways to look after the critters and crawlers in your garden and in fact we're currently standing in the wildlife garden in Wisley which is a great place to come and see to get some tips and some ideas for making a wildlife friendly garden. Um, it's in, designed in segments like the pattern of a bee's wing and part of those segments are actually the ponds. Now at this time of year what I'm finding fascinating is that you can look into the water and it's become very clear because of all the marginal planting that's in there and I love seeing the water soldier which in the summer floats on the surface it's kind of a spike plant it almost looks like a water spider plant but at this time of year it sinks down to the bottom of the pond and roots into the soil there and I just love the fact that you can look down and see its spiky little leaves sticking out of the mud it's great yeah it's a wonderful native plant that looks kind of surprisingly exotic its Latin name is Stratiotes alloides but I like I like water soldier it has a sort of old-fashioned poetry to it and yeah, I, I know what you mean, Melissa. I love seeing water in gardens that really seems to have found its balance. And the ponds really have found their balance here. They're only a few years old. The water is absolutely crystal clear and it's buzzing with life. You know, even just in the few moments that we've been here, we've seen dragonflies mm -hmm. darting around. We've seen water beetles. We've seen all sorts of creepy crawlies enjoying the water. And it's just, it's just lovely to be somewhere that is absolutely full of life. Speaking of your garden buzzing with life, this brings us to our next story. Entomologist Dr. Serian Subner is back for the third part of our mini-series on yellow jacket wasps. Today she's here to discuss what wasps are up to now and how we can best look after them. So at this time of the year, in mid-autumn, your wasp nest is no longer growing. It is as large as it will get and it might be looking a bit scrappy. 
The queen might even have died and lots of the workers will have died. So your nest is very much at the end of its colony cycle, the end of its life. And remember that these yellow jacket wasps are an annual species in the UK. And so they, their colony will definitely be dying at the end of the autumn, early winter. And it's at this time of year when there are no longer any worker brood being reared, but the sexual brood are beginning to emerge. So these are the unmated new queens, which we call gynes, and the males. And what their aim is to do now is to go off on a mating flight and mate. And then soon after that, the males will simply die and the mated females will go into hibernation. But it's really important that this stage in their colony cycle, the beginning of the life of these new queens, is carried out in the right way. So the most important thing for a queen first, prospective queen for next year, is to go off and get mated. And so to do this, they fly out of the colony and they will fly quite far. They'll fly a couple of kilometres away. And the reason why they need to fly a couple of kilometres away is because they don't want to mate with their brothers because that would be inbreeding and that would be bad. <laughs> um, so they fly several kilometres away. And then they, the queens, these new queens, will produce a mating pheromone to attract males. They're trying to attract males from other colonies to come and mate with them. And there'll often be a cluster of males together, typically around a landmark, like a tree or a fence. And the queens will then mate with several males. They mate with five to seven or maybe even ten males. And they store the sperm from all these different mates in a sac in their abdomen called the spermatheca. And those mating flights, that frenzy of mating, will ensure that the queen has stored enough sperm to fertilise thousands and thousands of eggs the following year when she starts up her new colony. So your job as a gardener is to ensure the success of the newly mated queens and that they are safely able to hibernate somewhere for the winter, such that in the spring that they can emerge and start a new colony and do all that pest control and pollinating for you yet again. So you might find that these queens appear in all sorts of places that you probably don't want them, like inside your welly boot or <laughs> nestled in your gardening glove. <laughs> so do look out for these queens at that time. They'll be very big. They'll be sleepy. And if you do find um, a queen, then just pop her somewhere. She won't be aggressive at all. She really won't sting you unless you actually put weight on her and stamp on her by a mistake. But try and put her in a shady corner of your shed or in your attic if you really want to. But try and put her somewhere warm and dry so that she's sheltered from the elements. And she will happily cling on to a bit of your insulation or a bit of your, your garden shed wall and hibernate there. And, and by hibernating, she will be slowing down her metabolism and over the few weeks before she goes into hibernation, as well as mating, she'll also be really pumping up her fat such that 40% of her dry body weight will be fat. And this is really critical because in order to survive hibernation, these queens really do have to have laid down a lot of fat. Otherwise, they just simply won't survive. So making sure that these hibernating queens are given the chance to hibernate safely is really important if you want to have those environmentally friendly pest controllers and pollinators in your garden next summer. 
That was Sarian Sumner. Sarian is the author of Endless Forms, The Secret World of Wasps. You can find a link to that in our show notes. And now for our final story of the day, we're going inside the lovely RHS Hilltop building to get some of our advisors' late autumn tips and tricks. Hi, Becky Mealy here, and I'm a horticulture advisor here at RHS Wisley. And today we are going to be talking about late autumn garden tasks. I am joined by my colleague, Michaela. Good morning. And Trish. Good morning. So autumn tasks. So it's we're kind of really getting into autumn now, coming up to winter. For me, this is actually one of my favourite tasks. So actually, can I talk about leaf mould? <laughs> you can talk yeah, about leaf mould. Yeah, mold. I love leaf mould. So... Basically, leaf mould is a big pile of leaves that you let just purely compost on its own. So you can have it in a compost bin. Sometimes people have it with a little bit of chicken wire around it to keep it all tidy or maybe even just in a bin bag. Or I quite like the hessian sacks because they're breathable and the moisture can go in. It breaks down into absolutely a beautiful crumbly substance that you can add to your compost when you're potting your plants or you can use as a mulch. I just like the idea of having a waste product that you get something so beautiful from. Just there you go, really excited about leaf mould. I must admit, I'm a great composter and I get loads and loads of leaves. And although I don't make leaf mould like Becky, what I do, I do store it in bags and then I add it in the summer when I've got a lot of wet stuff in my compost. I add layers then of the dry leaves. So I'm always getting a good balance between dry brown things and wet green things in my compost. Okay, so Michaela, what about mulching? You must mulch. Mulching, yes. I'm lucky in my garden that I have sandy soil, so you can mulch in the autumn, or you can wait and weed your garden in early spring and then mulch afterwards. The thing about mulching is around your trees and shrubs, you need to leave a collar, you don't need to mulch right up to the stems. This causes a lot of problems with stem rot and it makes the plant feel like it's drowning. Herbaceous plants and perennials, it doesn't seem to matter to them, but just be a bit careful around the crown of the plant. And I think sometimes it's a good idea just to judge what's happened with the mulch because sometimes you don't always need to put a full layer of mulch on. You might just need to top up the mulch that's already there because yeah. I think that's like what sometimes happens is the mulch builds up, builds up, builds up, and then that's when like the trees and shrubs can get in a bit too deep yeah. and, as you say, the collar gets a bit too built up. So ideally, we, we're talking, what, about 10 centimetres, 4 inches is a good yeah. good mulch? I also have sandy soils, but very hot, and I garden on a slope. So I find that I sometimes my mulch is completely broken down halfway through the summer. So what I'll do then is really wet the bed first and then put another layer of mulch or top up the mulch. So that's the thing that we're wanting is that the soil needs to be wet first and then you mulch because otherwise it would be very difficult to re-wet the soil. Yeah, which is why autumn is a great time for mulching because hopefully the soil is nice and wet in your area and it's a perfect time for applying your mulch. What do you, Becky, use in your mulch? What sort of things do you mulch with? Leaf mould. You mulching with leaf yeah. mould? Yeah. And what do you use in your mulch? Um, either bark chips or 
well-rotted manure. I also use my garden compost because I've got my big garden, <laughs> my big compost heap. So uh, your garden compost is great because you're actually recycling everything you grow in your garden, you're composting it and then you're putting it back on your bed. So that's a nice closed circle. Totally. Last year, we had quite a few losses in the garden because of the sudden change in temperature. Um, so this year, I think a lot of people are definitely going to be looking at what they're going to be wrapping up for overwintering. Trish, what do you wrap up and what do you bring in in your garden? I have a very small garden, so I don't have anything particularly tender, but I did have problems with things like agapanthus in pots this last year, but I need to put them in a place where they're going to be kept frost-free. So I don't wrap those, but I just move them out of the, the garden and, and, and into a shed. I bring quite a few things inside and put, put them in a cold greenhouse just so it's a bit, a bit easier. Things like hibiscus, just so that they're a little bit more sheltered. And your citrus would come in, you'd need to bring that in. I think sometimes, though, it's being aware that if you're bringing plants into the home, it's what temperatures your home's sitting at. Because sometimes you can bring them in and the, the good old central heating, especially we, we get quite a lot of um, grumpy looking citrus where they've um, been sat next to the radiator and then they've all lost their leaves just because it's just too dry in there. So it's a good idea to have it, have somewhere where it's cool and not too warm over the actual winter for them to stay. So something about 10C is quite nice for citrus. Perhaps an unheated bedroom can be quite useful as long as it's got bright light. We've also got some plants that we might just wrap just when we have a prediction of something really cold. You wouldn't want to wrap some plants for the whole of winter. You would maybe just... Perhaps your bays, we've had a lot of bay problems being damaged by snow and very cold weather. If you have it predicted, looked at the weather report, wrap your bay, but then if the weather's really warm during the day, we would open up that fleece, just let some air in. Things like dahlias, if you're growing on a sandy soil, quite a few gardeners leave dahlias in the ground and put a mulch over the top, or you can dig them up and dry them out in trays and keep them in a frost-free, cool, but frost-free environment through the winter months and then replant in the spring. So you do that once the frosts had killed the tops? Yes. Yeah. I think also think about what, what your soil's like. My allotment gets waterlogged in the winter, so I have left dahlias sometimes and I've lost dahlias. <laughs> so now, for me... It's well worth digging them up, drying them out, as, as Michaela suggests. I, just, I normally just cover them with um, fresh potting compost in pots so that when they're ready, I can start watering them and then get them ready and back into the ground as soon as possible. But um, it's better than losing them. And finally, one of the pinnacles of autumn is the autumn colour. And um, Michaela, what would you suggest for autumn borders, containers? How can we make it all nice and autumn night in our gardens? Um, a few of my selection for stems use one of the cornus sanguineus. A lovely orange one is Amy's Winter Orange. Heucheras are also excellent. A good red one is Heuchera fire chief. A darker leaved one is Heuchera obsidian. 
And also Lyriope muscari has drumstick flowers of bright purple in the autumn. They're quite a distinctive flower, yeah, aren't they? Quite yeah. unique. And it's a gorgeous, absolute violet. It looks like they're made out of plastic, but they're not. They are real. Yeah. Um, one of the plants that I look forward to seeing is um, Euronymous Red Cascade. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love the vividness of the reds and also love the seed heads and the berries that just look quite funky. And I'm always looking for things to put into my pots. If You know, if you've planted pots up with bulbs, to give them some colour then, I found uh, Bellus perillus was really good this winter. They really performed well. They flowered profusely and were a nice change from the normal pansies and violets. Excellent. And no leaf spot, because that's what pansies get. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Brilliant. On that note, thank you very much for joining me today, guys. And I hope your gardens are looking lovely and autumnal as we're heading into the winter. It's been a pleasure and lots of fun. Good luck with the winter. Thanks there to Becky, Trish and Michaela. And before we wrap up today's show, I just wanted to ask you, Melissa, we've been at Wisley for a couple of days now. What's really caught your eye? I always love coming to Wisley at this time of year. There's still so much to enjoy in terms of the really subtle muted colour. And as well as the autumn finery, you really start to see the wonderful conifer plantings and all that really unusual texture that we have here in the very unusual choices of conifers. It really starts to stand out at this time of year and sparkle and shine in the low autumn sun. I love it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting that you've picked out those kind of muted colours. And we were talking about hydrangeas before, and that's kind of really, really made me want to plant hydrangeas in my own garden. I think they have such a long season of interest. And as you say, those colours kind of changing from vibrant summer colour to the, that more kind of vintage, antique like muted palette, it's really lovely. And of course, the flowers dry over the winter and they last a long time. So yeah, it's, it's a beautiful sight to behold. Yeah, we've seen some fantastic examples of dried flowers around the garden, haven't we? In the pavilions and all the different buildings, really creative displays. Amazing how, how they keep their colour as well. I think they're worth a visit just on their own. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to visit Wisley this autumn or winter, you can find details in our show notes. And just a quick note, RHS Glow is back starting on the 24th of November. The garden will be aglow with Christmas lights, a quote-unquote field of fire and even disco balls. So head to our website to get your tickets. So for me, Gareth Richards. And me, Melissa Mabbitt. Goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. 
And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced-rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 